This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Open up your Bibles to Revelation 12. Revelation 12. In the central section of Revelation, which is chapters 6 through 16, we have this series of judgments in the forms of the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. And they are interrupted at times with interludes, which shine a spotlight on the church and its place and its role and its experiences. And after the, the seventh seal, we launch immediately into uh, the seven trumpets. So we would expect after the seventh trumpet, which comes at the end of chapter 11, we would expect to launch into the seven bowls, but we don't. There's a pause in the action again. From chapter 12, verse 1, all the way through chapter 15, verse 4, we have another sort of interlude, but it's of a different variety than what we've been looking at so far. It functions to pull the curtain back to see what's really going on during this time of trial and persecution in which the church is both vulnerable and invincible. We've been looking at the fact that Revelation is not just recording events that occur right before the end of, of world history. It's covering the church age. It's establishing for us what our expectations ought to be as we live in the church age. Now, this interludes a little bit different variety. God is going to pull the curtain back, and he's going to allow us to see the deeper conflict that we live in today. We live in. An analogy will be helpful to summarize the big picture of this teaching. I want you to imagine a young boy, age four, bright blue eyes. And one day his father asks him, son, where did you get your blue eyes? And he responds with confidence, all the confidence a four-year-old can muster up, saying, God. Now imagine he's 21. He's a biology major. How would he answer the same question? Well, he would say, even though you and mom don't have blue eyes, you must have the necessary recessive genes that happily combine to give me my blue eyes. The answer's changed. Which answer is true? They both are. Which answer is more fundamental? Or consider another scenario. What caused Job's suffering? In the book of Job, what caused his suffering? Well, there were those bands of marauding Sabaeans and Chaldeans that took away his thousands of cattle and sheep and the like. That miserable windstorm that, that caused the crushing of his house and the killing of his ten children. His disease, so that he sits in a little ash heap using bits of broken pottery to pick at the scabs. What caused his suffering? All of those are true. Or you could say, Satan did it. You could even say, God did it. He certainly sanctioned it. Which description is truer they're all equally true. Which is more fundamental? 
What is the cause of the church's sufferings and difficulties? Is it totalitarian regimes? Fascist dictators? Discriminatory legal systems? This passage from Revelation 12 gives us a deeper analysis of the perennial difficulties and sufferings of the church. The primary problem the church faces in every generation is the rage of Satan. Now, I suspect that most of us don't look at the problems around us today and use that sort of analysis first. I would suspect that most of us, when we consider a problem in front of us, conclude the problem is sociological or political or educational. Analogous to saying someone has blue eyes due to the commingling of the necessary DNA. But Revelation is far more concerned with revealing the fundamental forces behind human experience. One of, the, one of the points the Apostle Paul makes in Ephesians 6 is that behind, above, beyond, below, all flesh and blood evil are spiritual forces. So Revelation 12 pulls the curtain back to allow us to peer into the fundamental reasons for the hardships Christians face. We'll walk through it verse by verse. Chapter 12, starting in verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. So a great sign appears in John's vision. The sign is a woman, beautiful and exalted, clothed with the radiance of the sun. The moon is under her feet, and on her head is a crown of 12 stars. She is demonstrating influence in the world. Who is she? Seems naturally to think she's Mary because verse 5 clearly says she gives birth to Jesus. However, there are a number of reasons why this text does not encourage us to view this woman as Mary. First, the way in which she's described in verse 1 is unlike any description we have of Mary in the scriptures. Second, after having her child snatched up into heaven, we read in verse 6, she flees into the desert where God takes care of her for 1260 days. That doesn't sound like Mary's experience. Third, if we understand the woman to be Mary, then verses 13 through 16 don't make sense because the text says Satan then pursues Mary to harm her and defeat her. But who does Satan pursue? What is his purpose? What is he driven by, motivated by? Fourth, most most decisively, verse 17, then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Who are those? Those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So who are her offspring? Jew and Gentile believers alike. The clause, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus does not allow us to restrict the reference to Mary's biological children. It's broader than that. So who are the woman's offspring? Everyone who obeys God's commandments and holds to the testimony of Jesus. The evidence is convincing here to see that this woman is not Mary. And who is she? I think you see it in verse 17. This is a symbolic reference for the people of God. This will get clearer as we proceed. Verse 2, she was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. In the Old Testament, there are numerous places where Israel... Uh, is described as suffering labor pains in anticipation of the coming Messiah. One example of that is Isaiah 66. 
Before she goes into labor, she gives birth. Before the pains come upon her, she delivers a son. Who has ever heard of such things? Who has ever seen things like this? Can a country be born in a day or a nation be brought forth in a moment? Yet no sooner is Zion in labor than she gives birth to her children. Zion is giving birth. Zion is another way the Old Testament speaks about God's old covenant people. In the New Testament, God's people are referred to as a woman, the bride of Christ. Verse 3, then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. Heaven isn't free from conflict, for a fiery red dragon appears with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems. This parodies Jesus Christ, who's also portrayed in Revelation as having horns and diadems. The way the dragon is described is indicative of his authority and his strength. In the book of Daniel, the ten horns are ten kings belonging to the fourth beast. The link between the numbers of the dragon and the number of rulers, human rulers, suggests the dragon manifests itself in and through human rulers and authorities. We're going to look at this very closely when we get to chapter 13. And his rule is not limited to one kingdom at one particular time. He exerts influence age after age. And the point being made is that throughout the church, the church age will see Satan exercise his rule and authority in this world through human leaders. This gets more graphic, as I said, in chapter 13. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. So again, we get a picture of his destructiveness. This could possibly refer to angels. And some see here the moment in history where some of the angels followed Satan and became his own angels. In Daniel 8, verse 10, however, the stars... Antiochus four Epiphanes throws to the ground and tramples are Israelites. This probably refers to the persecution of Israel by Antiochus. And in alluding to this, John is making the same point. The dragon's hostility toward the people of God leads him to oppress them. And this reading ties the two parts of the verse together. Just as the dragon persecuted the people of God, so now he's ready to pounce on the woman as she's about to give birth. The dragon seeks to devour and destroy Christ, and we see the sort of demonic intent in Herod's attempt to slay the baby Jesus. Verse 5, she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Gives birth to a son. This is where Jesus is described using the language out of Psalm 2. To rule the nations with a rod of iron. The dragon fiercely desired to slay this son, knowing this child spelled his demise. What's interesting is that John skips over Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, moves immediately to his ascension. In an incredibly concise way, John records Jesus' triumph over the dragon. Verse 6, the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. So the woman, symbolic for the people of God, flees to the wilderness. What's the significance of the wilderness or the desert? Again, we have to interpret this through the eyes of a first century Christian 
who had as their resource the Old Testament. And this undoubtedly recalls to mind the numerous references made to the wilderness or the desert in the Old Testament. When you synthesize all those references, we would conclude that a first century Christian would view the desert as a place where during the Exodus, Israel was protected and nourished by God on the one hand, but also a place of trial and testing and hardship. In the New Testament, we could think of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness where he was both tested and protected. So undoubtedly, when we read of the wilderness or the desert in Revelation, we're meant to see this as a place of both trial, hardship, and protection. What is the significance of the 1260 days? We looked at that last week. 1260 days, 42 months, or time times and half a time, three and a half years. It's not a statement about quantitative measurement, but a qualitative state of affairs. It is a time of trial and testing and hardship through which God remains faithful to his people as they maintain their loyalty to Christ. It's a reference to the entire time between Christ's ascension and his second coming. The Christian life is lived in this space of time called 1260 days, 42 months, time, times, and half a time. The Christian life is lived in the wilderness. So let's take a step back. Revelation 12 presents a grand history of the church in the form of a vision of a woman, her son, and a great red dragon. The woman stands for the people of God, through which God brought his son, the Savior, into the world. The dragon is the devil who opposes the birth of the child and persecutes the church after Christ has ascended in power. So verses 1 to 6 introduce the players in this holy war, showing how God overcame the devil through the birth and the saving ministry of Christ. Now, starting in verse 7, the vision continues by showing the devil's ongoing warfare against believers. Again, God is pulling the curtain back to allow us to see what's going on behind the flesh and blood evil we see transpiring around us even today. Satan suffered a terrible defeat in the coming of Christ so that his activities are curtailed. Nonetheless, he continues to rage with the resources he has left in the spiritual warfare that marks this age between the first and second comings of Christ. Verse 7, then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. So this verse is showing us there are multiple fronts to the war, are there not? Not only is there a front fought on earth with Jesus, his people, Satan, and his minions, but there's also a warfare in the spiritual realms. To understand that verse better, we need verse 13 to clarify things. And that verse reports the dragon had been thrown down to earth and then pursued the woman who had given birth to Jesus. This means that the dragon's ultimate defeat occurred through the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He's been thrown down. Jesus' victory on the cross, crowned with his ascension to heaven's throne, defeated Satan and his army. Verse 9, the great red dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. 
Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. See, previously, previous to the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus, Satan could legitimately accuse you in God's presence because of your sin. But now that sins are cleansed and forgiven through the cross, he has no grounds for accusation. He has no standing or place in the presence of God. So from this perspective, the battle between Michael and Satan might be thought of as a legal contest in the courtroom of heaven. The heavenly voices rejoice that with Satan's defeat, he who accuses day and night has lost his court privileges. But the point's actually stronger than that. The point is he has no warrant or basis to accuse believers in the first place. God pays no attention to Satan's accusations because his accusations have been rendered useless by the blood of the lamb. Verse 11, they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. The atoning work of Jesus is the fundamental reason Christians conquer the dragon, but they also conquer because of the word of their testimony. John was imprisoned because of his testimony regarding Jesus. Martyrs were slain because of their testimony concerning Jesus. To be a Christian is to hold to the testimony of Jesus. Believers conquer the devil because of their adherence to the gospel. And their devotion is evident in their willingness to give their lives. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Verse 12, therefore rejoice you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. He's got no standing in heaven anymore. No basis for accusation, but he still plays a role on earth, does he not? The devil's desires for spiritual harm, deception. What we experience in the Christian life from him are the last-ditch efforts of an already defeated foe. Verse 13, when the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. So he realizes he's been expelled from heaven and is restricted to earth. His accusations against God's people no longer have any warrant, so he persecutes the woman, God's people. Verse 14, the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. The dragon intends to utterly destroy you. But his insane pursuit does not succeed. No power of hell No scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Verse 15, then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. 
But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. His tactics are portrayed symbolically to indicate things like persecution and deceit and false teaching and moral depravity. All as a way to overwhelm the church. But God provides. He protects. The church may be rocked by false teaching and moral compromise, but it finally and ultimately stands steadfast. Verse 17, Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. The point of the verse is the dragon is unrelenting until the last day. There are no ceasefire agreements. Even though he's an already defeated foe, his fight continues. Three crucial truths we need if we're going to persevere in hard times. Three truths we're going to need in order to persevere in hard times. Number one, remember you're in the midst of a cosmic conflict that is profoundly spiritual. The hard times we face, the hard times we face happen because we are in a world that is groaning and it's waiting for release from its bondage to decay. It's trying to give birth to a new heaven and a new earth. If you've ever been in a delivery room, when it's been most intense, that is the church age. That is the church age. That is the time we're living in. And you're part of it. So there's going to be conflict. You're in this spiritual conflict. But the curtain of the drama that is your life, behind the curtain of the drama that is your life, and I know some of you have a lot of drama. Behind this drama, there stands a victorious king who loves you, who died for you, and who wants what's good for you and what will give him glory. And there's also a liar, a deceiver, a destroyer, who wants you to hate this king, or at least be so distracted by other things that you don't think about him or genuinely love him. The destroyer wants the church to compromise the gospel. He wants you to disbelieve God's promises. He wants us as a church to backbite and slander one another and speak ill of each other. He wants us to be cowardly. He wants us to attempt little and accomplish less. He wants your leaders to be arrogant. He wants your leaders to spend very little time in prayer or meditating on God's word. He wants us as a church to be theologically unaware and indifferent. We have an enemy who wants us all to look at church as a consumable service that exists only to satisfy my defined, self-defined inner needs rather than a group of people I commit myself to in prayer, study, love, and encouragement. There is a battle going on. There's a cosmic conflict going on and your supposedly mundane life is part of this conflict. 
Behind the scenes in this world is a devil who is hell-bent on dethroning Jesus Christ and defiling his church, his bride, his woman. And you're in the midst of this conflict and it is profoundly spiritual. Second, remember, your spiritual well-being is more important than your physical well-being. One of the tensions we've seen these past two weeks is the tension between trial and persecution on one hand, trial and persecution on one hand, and victory between vulnerability and invincibility, between suffering and winning. Have you noticed that? There's a tension in here. This is what it's going to be like. It's going to be hard. It's going to be tough. There'll be hardships. The dragon is pursuing. The holy city is trampled on. The two witnesses are killed. It's going to be tough, but you're going to be protected. What kind of protection exactly? It's spiritual. And it's clearly the deeper concern in God's mind as he reveals this book to us. Just because Christians have triumphed through Christ doesn't mean we won't be litigated against because of our beliefs and practices. It's a big part of the book. Revelation is trying to shape your expectations for how life is going to be right now, not some distant future. There will be difficulties. There will be martyrs. But in spite of that, the book retains a hopeful tenor because the theme of victory is so pronounced. Why? Because for the believer, their spiritual fate is sealed. It's secure. Your spiritual well-being is of far greater importance than your physical well-being. That's what Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 4. He says physical training has some value, but godliness has value for all things. So we're engaged in a cosmic war. How do you think that impacts Satan's tactics? If our spiritual well-being is the ultimate target... How do you think that impacts his tactics? His objective, friends, is not to damage the church physically, materially, or economically unless those serve the purpose of spiritual demise. Sometimes the best way to damage someone spiritually is to cause great physical harm. In their physical pain, they curse God. It's a means to an end. For some people, physical suffering causes them to run to God even more. Satan doesn't want that. So he'll change the tactic. Maybe make it economics. Maybe the best way to get this church to curse God or at least treat him with indifference is to make them suffer economically or prosper economically. For others, perhaps the best way to remove God from the hearts and minds of people is to create the conditions for them not to gather anymore as a church. Allow the cares of this world to come flooding in to replace the space once reserved for Christ. The only way to make sense of Revelation's confidence and hope in the believer's triumph in the face of intense hardship is that revelation elevates spiritual well-being above physical well-being. Now that generates some hard-hitting questions. 
Are you willing to pay an economic price in order to attend to your spiritual well-being? If your career is leaving your spiritual health in tatters, what are you willing to do to reverse the trend? Are you willing to pay a physical price in order to attend to your spiritual well-being? Are you willing to put it all on the line? Third, remember the war is won through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now we're called to overcome. We're exhorted to be strong, to be courageous, to fight the good fight, but don't think for one second you're called to be dragon slayers. That's the good news. He's been defeated. He's been hurled down. The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and of his Christ have come and are coming and will soon come. So when I say the theme of Revelation is victory and we're called to overcome, don't think that I'm telling you the world depends on you. It doesn't depend on you to defeat evil. That's been accomplished. And the fate of the universe does not rest on your shoulders. We are called to overcome, not by paying for our sin, not by self-flagellation, but by verse 11. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Notice the past tense. They triumphed. It's already been accomplished. To a great degree, genuine believer, your fate is sealed and it cannot be changed. You're a winner. Sometimes Jesus speaks of the kingdom as already having dawned. It's already here, operating secretly as it were. It's like yeast that's put into dough. It's already quietly working and having its effect. That's true. Yet elsewhere, Jesus speaks of the kingdom as what comes at the end when there's a final consummation and tremendous transformation. So the kingdom is both. It's already, it's here, like yeast secretly working in the dough, doing its thing behind the scenes. Yeah. And yet there's a sense in which the kingdom is yet to come. All of these notions of kingdom center on one thing. Jesus is, in fact, king. He's not a candidate for the office. He's king. After World War II, a Swiss theologian by the name of Oscar Coleman used one of the turning points in the war to explain some of this, what I've been talking about here. He drew attention to what happened on D-Day, June 6, 1944. By this time, the Western Allies had already cleaned out North Africa. They started pushing up the boot of Italy. The Russians were coming in from the steppes. They had already defended Stalingrad. They were pushing their way to and through Poland and other Eastern European countries. And now, on D-Day, the Western Allies landed on the beaches of Normandy And in three days, they dumped 1.1 million men and tons and tons of war weaponry. Anybody with half a brain in his head could see the war's over. In terms of energy and 
weaponry, the numbers of soldiers, and the way all these lines and trajectories were converging, the war was over. Does that mean Hitler said, oops, I miscalculated and pleaded for peace? No. What came next was the Battle of the Bulge, where he almost made it right through to the coast of France again, except he ran out of fuel. There followed the Battle for Berlin, which was one of the bloodiest of the entire war. So the war was not over yet. When did it end? It took an entire year. It took an entire year. VE Day. Victory in Europe Day. Coleman says that the experience of Christians is like that. The coming of Jesus his cross work, his resurrection is our D-Day. After rising from the dead, Jesus declares, according to the last verses of Matthew's gospel, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's the king. But does that mean the devil says, oops, I miscalculated I think I'd better plead for peace. Does it mean human beings will say, okay, 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 you've risen from the dead. You've won. You've won. Uh, We'd better bow the knee. We'd better bow the knee. No. No. What it means, Christian, is that you have some of the fiercest fighting remaining. The question that faces all of humanity is whether we will bow the knee now, cheerfully, in repentance and faith and thanksgiving, or wait until the end to bend the knee in holy terror. The end is coming. Christian VE day is coming. And there is no doubt who will be seen as king on the last day. Let's pray. And Lord, since this is true, we are contending with spiritual realities far beyond anything we can imagine. There is a dragon and he relentlessly pursues your people. He has not waved the white flag. What we experience are indeed the last ditch efforts of an already defeated foe. So on the one hand, we can celebrate our victory, a victory that comes through Jesus alone. And on the other hand, We overcome by the word of our testimony. We do not love our lives so much so as to shrink back from death. 
even in the face of this intense fighting, God, I pray that you would remind us how the victory was won. When Jesus came and lived, died, rose again, and ascended into heaven, Satan lost his court privileges. And he lost the grounds on which he could launch any kind of accusation against those who belong to you. We relish that. We thank you, Jesus. You have won. Make that our passion, our joy, our hope. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.